you have your copies of Scripture, I invite you to turn with me to the uh, seventh chapter of this epistle, Hebrews chapter 7. And we'll be looking starting at verse 26. Whenever people talk about the great chapters of the Bible, the chapter that often comes to many minds is Psalm 23 because of how beautifully it expresses our relationship as sheep to the great shepherd of our souls. For others, the chapter that comes to mind is, as Pastor Eric just read, Romans 8. A chapter, as many of you know, is a chapter that serves as an exclamation point to the doctrine of grace. Now, as we look to close out this chapter, this seventh chapter of Hebrews tonight, I believe with all my heart that this chapter needs to be included within that great list of great chapters of the Bible. Because it's here, as we'll study tonight, that we find the great doctrine of Christ, the priesthood of the Messiah and the sacrifice of God, all culminated in the person and in the work of Jesus. But before we begin to look at that and unpack that, let's first come together and read Hebrews chapter 7, 7 verse 26. The Lord says, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Amen. Bow with me in a word of prayer. O Lord, as we turn our attentions to the preaching of Your Word, we come knowing that Your Word is powerful and active, able to effectively accomplish all that You will it to do. In a world of created and changeable things, we, as Your beloved, take great comfort in that we look to Him who is unshakable, unchanging, and eternal. And by the Spirit, we pray that you would unfold your truths to us, that you would feed us and nourish us in the great green pasture that is your word. Refresh our souls anew and bring the lost to saving faith. And above all else, we pray that you would be magnified through all that takes place tonight in your worship service. We pray all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. The late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce shared that his favorite sermon that was ever preached came from Genesis chapter 22, verse 7, the narrative of Abraham and Isaac, where God directed Abraham to take up his son Isaac and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. God commands Abraham, he says to him, take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. And in making their way, 
Isaac, not knowing that he was to be the one who would be sacrificed, as they drew near to that site, asked this very question, which then served as the very title of that sermon he so loved. And he asks this, Where is the Lamb? To which Abraham replied, God will provide for himself the Lamb. It was through this sermon that Boyce pointed out that Isaac's question to his father, Where is the Lamb? And Abraham's answer that the Lord will provide serves as the very theme for the entirety of the Old Testament. Where is the Lamb? To which is nowhere better and more clearly answered than in the words of John the Baptist in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, as we shift our attentions back to Hebrews 7, what we find here at the tail end of this chapter are the very reasons for why Jesus alone stands as the priest of God and why He is qualified to serve as the Lamb of God. Hervius, a medieval scholar, he helpfully writes that whenever we discuss or study uh, uh, the subject of a sacrifice, there's Four points that need to be considered. He writes first, those for whom the sacrifice is offered. Second, those to whom the sacrifice is offered. Third, by whom the sacrifice is offered. And lastly, the very sacrifice itself that's being offered. And keeping this within our minds, chapter 7's already dealt with the first two points. Those for whom the sacrifice is offered, namely sinful man under condemnation of the law, and to whom the sacrifice is offered, which is God. Now it's to these last two points, what is offered and by whom the sacrifice is offered is what we'll be spending our time unpacking together tonight. So with that said, let's look down again to verse 26 and look at this together. We read here, For such a high priest was fitting for us. Now this is the second time in the book of Hebrews that the writer describes Jesus to be fitting for us. The first time we've seen this can be found in chapter 2 of verse 10 in that it was fitting for Jesus as the high priest, if you remember, in bringing many sons to glory. And the point that the writer is trying to re-emphasize here in chapter 7 and trying to get his readers to understand is this. That Jesus is not only fitting, you see, but that he has been perfectly fitted by God for us. Meaning Jesus has been appropriately fitted for every predicament in which we find ourselves in this life that He's perfectly fitted for us in every way to be our Savior. And in a very real sense, when we read these words, for such a high priest was fitting for us, what we're really reading here is that we're reading this profound yet simple statement that Jesus Christ is enough for you. That He is all that you need. That there exists not one need or one circumstance, not one facet of life met for which Jesus Christ is not suitable for you. 
There exists not one sin, not one temptation or trial that puts you outside the realm of His suitability. In other words, Jesus, who is Himself the Son of God, who is Himself the Great High Priest, has been perfectly fitted in every imaginable or possible way to be the Savior. And in presenting the kind of Savior that He is, the writer moves on to the very foundation of why, of why and of how that is. He doesn't just state the fittingness of Christ to move on, but He provides for us here the very reasons for why that is, and that by qualifying the fittingness of Jesus with, if you look down, three adjectives. We read here in verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us, and he writes, who is holy, harmless, and undefiled. The three qualities that we find here isn't simply the grouping of random words that just came to his mind that are right or true, but these descriptions, these descriptions that we find here serve a very specific purpose. These words are tri-directional or tri-relational. Now let me unpack and explain to you what I mean by this. What we find here in verse 26 is that Jesus' priesthood is qualified vertically, horizontally, and inwardly. It's qualified vertically pertaining to God the Father, horizontally pertaining to the people of God, and inwardly pertaining to Christ himself. First, Jesus is fit for us, as we read here, because he's holy. And the word that's used here in the Greek for holy isn't the typical word that's often used for that translation. But we might better understand or translate this word hosios as devoted or consecrated. Meaning this is a qualification that deals not with how Jesus appeared before men, but how Jesus appears before God as the consecrated one. There's a vertical emphasis here and a Godward holiness and a Godward acceptability. And it's this particular quality of Jesus, His consecrated holiness that stands as absolutely necessary in light of the stark contrast that exists between Him and the Levitical priesthood. Because at the end of the day, the very reason for why Aaron and all of his sons were never able to say that they were perfectly fitted for us was because of their own imperfection, you see. And so we find here that the very reason for why Jesus is perfectly fitted for us to save us is because He is holy. Because He's ceremoniously, ceremonially rather, acceptable before God the Father as our High Priest. Shifting from the vertical now to the horizontal, the writer continues to qualify Jesus' Jesus's fittingness by describing Him to be harmless. That's what my translation says from the New King James, harmless. But your translations might have innocent or blameless. I prefer the word blameless here. This to say that there was absolutely nothing wrong, no sin to be found or ever committed from Jesus, both in action or motivation, 
toward his fellow men. He was thoroughly blameless. Now what's amazing as we consider this quality, this horizontal quality of Jesus, is that if we were to take a step back and look at this and think about this, we would come to quickly recognize that some of the most profound statements regarding the sinlessness of Jesus have come from those who have lived most closely with him for three years. You notice that? If you think about it, that's pretty profound. We read Simon Peter describe Jesus in 1 Peter 1.19 to be a lamb without blemish and without spot. John presents Jesus in 1 John 1.5 as the one who is utterly pure. Now, I don't think we have to spend much time here together to convince one another that all you would need to do is spend one day, perhaps even a few hours, to see that each and every one of us has a fault, that each one of us has something annoying about us, even as nice as you might be, seemingly. But we find here this profound testimony that these men who lived day by day in close proximity with Jesus during his whole earthly ministry to find absolutely no fault in Jesus, but to simply see him and describe him as the one who is blameless. Now that's amazing. In seeing the fittingness of Jesus' priesthood, both vertically and horizontally, the last quality that we find listed here is that he's undefiled. Meaning Jesus is thoroughly pure inside and out. Now if there was anything that served as the perpetual reminder of the imperfection of the Levitical priesthood, it was simply the fact that every priest that arose within that system was corrupt. Every priest from birth, just like the rest of humanity, was defiled with sin, and everybody knew that. This wasn't a shock. So much so that everybody under that old covenant, as they saw these priests go up and offer up these sacrifices on their behalf year after year, they know no doubt thought to themselves, there is absolutely no way that this is it. This cannot be it. This sacrifice that these imperfect priests offer on my behalf, it can't be it. It's just imperfect. Everyone knew that there was something inherently flawed and broken with that old system. I mean, you can just put yourself in their shoes, in their situation. I mean, if the high priest he would have been your neighbor. If you saw him, this guy, your neighbor or your friend or your brother, and you see him go up and make a sacrifice on your behalf, you're thinking as he goes up there, I know that guy. And he, I don't know how he's going to do it. Or let's say that the high priest happens to be your husband and you see him go up and make an offering for your sins. You're probably thinking, we just had an argument this week. I mean, how can this guy go up and Think that he can make a sin offering on my behalf. Make one for yourself. But what we see here, as we think about this, is we see this real reality of their situation of fallen men interceding on behalf of other fallen men before God. And this was the pattern until the one that we read here, who is undefiled, came and ushered in the new 
And so in seeing the holiness and the blamelessness and the purity of Jesus, the vertical and the horizontal and the inward, the message here is plain and simple, and it's this, that Jesus is everything that we're not. And everything that He is, He stands alone, distinguished and qualified and perfectly fitted by God for us as our high priest. Now, whenever we consider the sinlessness of Jesus, I believe that one of the great dangers that confronts us continually is taking this truth at face value while failing to understand the profound implications that come along with it. But friends, we need to recognize that it's the very sinlessness of Christ that serves as the linchpin that infinitely distinguishes Jesus apart from the Levitical priesthood. In other words, Jesus' sinlessness is not just a matter of him not having a sort of demerit before God, but it also is a matter of him perfectly fulfilling all of God's commands. This is exactly what Paul, Apostle Paul, meant in 1 Corinthians 5.21. Not only did God make him who knew no sin to be sin for us because he was sinless, And he doesn't just end there, as you guys know, but he continues to say that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How? By his obedience. This to say that it's his sinlessness that brings to light his obedience, and it's his obedience that brings to light his sinlessness. So that when we consider the law of God and what it requires from each and every one of us, when we consider the two greatest commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself, and when it's asked of us, if we've perfectly lived up to those standards and those requirements, and as we stand there guilty, it's at that very moment that we can look to his sinlessness and his obedience and say that he has done it for us that he has accomplished it for us it's in christ jesus who was perfectly fitted for us as our high priest who saves us and it's in him that we live beloved though it was our sinfulness that took his life as he laid it down by his own accord It's His sinlessness that gives us life. It's His sinlessness that we continue to read here in verse 26, that He has been separated from sinners and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for His own sins and then for the people's. For this He did once for all when He offered up Himself. Again, what we see here is a contrast continue between the old to the new, the Levitical priesthood to Jesus. And the reason for why the writer keeps bringing this point up over and over and over again as a point of argument is because you have to remember he's writing to a group of people who are trying to find every little reason to abandon the faith under the pressures of persecution. He was writing to a group of people who are reaching out to grasp for any little reason to give them any sort of grounds to submit themselves back under that old covenant. 
And so the writer is making very clear here that there has been a radical break from the old to the new. That the better hope had already come. That unlike the priests of old, while the high priests had to, had to offer up sacrifices for themselves before they could even offer up a sacrifice on behalf of others, this was totally irrelevant to Jesus who was utterly sinless. And we see here that the fundamental difference between the Levitical priesthood to Jesus' priesthood is character. Jesus is better than the old because of his moral perfection, because of his holiness, his blamelessness, and his purity, something that the Levitical priests could never have imagined or have said. As it was in the likeness of Melchizedek being sent with the oath, and by becoming the surety of a better covenant that qualified Jesus to be the high priest of God, as we studied in the previous weeks, what we find here in our passage tonight is that it was Jesus' sinlessness that qualified him at the end of verse 27 to be the once and for all perfect and final offering to God. To be the sinless Lamb of God slain for sinners. One commentator helpfully writes, he writes, "In, in all these respects, Jesus was fitted according to our need. He is all that we are not but need to be. And so he offered himself for us. He offered himself up and it was with reference to our sin that he was fitted to be our sin-bearing sacrifice and holy priest. Because Jesus is untouched by sin, he is then able to lay down his life in the place of sinners so that we will be forgiven by God. If there are any of you in here tonight without Christ, what's absolutely clear here in our passage tonight is that there is only one solution to your problem with sin. And the solution comes by the name of Jesus. It's to Him alone in His work of atonement as the Lamb of God that you must trust. The reformer Martin Luther was correct to write, either sin is with you lying on your shoulders or it's lying on Christ, who is the Lamb of God. If it be lying on your back, you are lost. But if it's resting upon Christ, you are free and you will be saved. Friends, don't try to add something to something you can't. Don't try to achieve something that is infinitely impossible for you to earn for yourself. But as we often say, salvation belongs to Christ alone. He who is both the priest and lamb of God, to the one who was perfectly fitted for you to save you. Now I want you to notice, if you look down again, to what extent is the effectiveness of Christ's suffering, or rather offering? We read here, for this he did once for all. Now the idea here is not that Jesus offered up himself once on behalf of all as some have tried to argue and make it say. But in the Greek, what we find here is an adverb of time. Meaning when Jesus offered up himself as the Lamb of God to be sacrificed, it was through his death that he effectively conquered sin for all time once and for all. 
While the priesthood of old had to offer up their sacrifices time and time again, sacrifice after sacrifice, priest after priest, the emphasis here as we look at this text lands on that one word, once. This to say that the sacrifice of Christ as the Lamb of God had eternal and final results. It was an offering made once, never to be repeated again, never to be duplicated ever again, an offering that accomplished what it sought out to do, the once and for all, to, to once and for all conquer and defeat the power of sin and death. And friends, this is why I believe with all of my heart why this passage, this chapter should be considered as one of the great passages of Scripture. Because it's here where we find the culmination of the magnificence of Christ come to life. Where we find in Him to be both the Son of God and the Son of Man. Both the offerer and the offering. The guarantor and the guarantee of salvation. The great high priest of God and the Lamb of God Himself. So that when we take all of these things and when we read that line, for this He did once for all when He offered up Himself, it's as if we're pulling back thousands and thousands upon thousands of Bible strings that come together in the person of Christ where all the promises of Scripture point to Him and and say, that's Him, that's the One, that's the Messiah, look to Him. He has done it for us. Going back to the two points that I introed with that pertain to a sacrifice, more specifically what what is offered and by whom is it offered, the answer as we consider these two points is plain and simple. What was offered? Jesus. And who was the one to make that offering? Jesus. Friends, it was Jesus, the great high priest, who offered himself up as the Lamb of God to once and for all conquer and defeat the power of sin and death, you see. Verse 28, we read, For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. In this closing verse, the writer transitions back to the old system and makes one final push, one final plea to his audience by communicating what he's already communicated time and time again. That the law is insufficient to save. That the old wasn't inherently broken system, a priesthood filled with mortal and corrupt men, and it's to Christ alone that they must look. It's to Him who is the high priest of God who came with an oath, who came with an oath, the logos of the oath, the appointed Son who has been perfected forever that they must look to and rest upon. Now what does it exactly mean here? as we look at verse 28, that Jesus was perfected forever. It's kind of a strange thing to say. 
Now, I want to answer this question first by beginning with what it doesn't mean. Jesus, having been perfected forever, does not mean that he was at one point in his life less than morally perfect. It does not mean that Jesus had to in some way grow in obedience or in any way stop sinning. As a matter of fact, the perfection that the writer is talking about here in this verse has nothing to do with his moral character per se, but rather the idea to bring something, or in this case, to bring someone to his appointed goal. To qualify him for a certain task, to bring about full maturity and completeness. In other words, Jesus having been perfected forever is to say that he was brought to his full intended goal as both the great high priest of God and as the Lamb of God. It means that the preparation and equipping for the office and work that he came into this world to do as both priest and as the sacrifice was perfectly accomplished and satisfied in him. It means that his saving purpose was exhaustively fulfilled. He did it. Another commentator writes, The Son, having accomplished his once and for all sacrifice, has brought God's saving purposes as well as his own personal calling to their ultimate goal, all of which produces a state of completion and permanence. This stands in contrast to the law, which could bring nothing to this stage of completion and fulfillment. The Levitical priesthood was based on the law. This new priesthood based on God's oath. The old priesthood was occupied by fallen immortal men, but this new priesthood was occupied by the Son who lives forever. The old priesthood was characterized in and of itself by weakness, while this new priesthood was characterized in the one who has been perfected forever. Church, what we find here, the schema that the writer presents to us here in this chapter is profound, yet simply sweet. And the schema is this. Perfect priest, Perfect sacrifice equals a perfect salvation. That's the message here. Perfect priest and perfect sacrifice in Christ equals a perfect salvation. And brothers and sisters, what this means is that there is absolutely nothing you can do to add or improve upon the work of Christ. We see from this passage that it's finished, it's complete, that it has been accomplished, qualified by his holiness and blamelessness and his purity. Jesus was perfectly fit to die for our sins. And in his death, by offering himself up as the sacrificial lamb of God, his work of atonement is perfectly finished, lacking in nothing in no way. Now, there are some of you out here tonight who thoroughly believe this in theory, but you live like you don't. There are some of you in here tonight who believe with 
without a shadow of a doubt, in the sinlessness and the accomplished work of Christ as the once and for all sacrifice, but still continue to live with this attitude of heart that betrays this very thought. Thinking to yourself, I just, I believe that, but just a little bit more. I believe that, but I just, I just feel like I need to do a little bit more to secure myself and to make sure that I am saved that I need to earn myself, my salvation for myself. But beloved, but beloved, I ask you this day, this night, do you desire to honor God? Do you desire to honor God? If so, then don't try to add or do a little more, but simply glory in the finished work of Christ. Friends, if you want to honor God, don't try to get a little more, but marvel and rejoice and saturate yourself in the one who is both the great high priest of God and the Lamb of God. We honor Him not by busying ourselves to Him, but by completely resting in Him and His work. To cling to Christ as the great high priest who intercedes for you is what pleases him. To take hold of Christ as the lamb who offered himself up as the perfect sacrifice is what honors him. It's for you to know that there is absolutely nothing you can do but to wholly trust and lean upon Jesus, my friend. And if there's anything that you seek to do or add upon that finished work of the Lamb of God, you must know that you do so not to the benefit of your salvation, but to your own judgment. Church, just as Jesus was perfectly fitted to deliver us from our predicament of sin and death, is He not perfectly fit to receive our worship? Everything that we've been taught in this passage, everything that we've seen and studied, serve as vehicles that should drive each and every one of us to our knees in worship. And it all begins with an, uh, an awareness of our need. And it's to this passage that says that it's Jesus who is the one who meets our every need. And how good it is to hear that. Unbelievers in here tonight, you must recognize this need. You must recognize you need forgiveness. And your need to be reconciled to God is found in the priest of God and the Lamb of God, Jesus. Just as Jesus is perfectly fitted to save you, just as Jesus is perfectly fit to be worshipped, unbeliever, listening to me now, listen to this. If you continue and remain in your sins, I tell you this day that you are at this very moment perfectly fitting yourselves to your own condemnation. It's to Jesus Christ who is both the great high priest and the Lamb of God that you must trust, believe, and follow. And only when you can fully rest upon His accomplished work of salvation will you be able to sing in the truest sense the words that we'll confess in a few moments. That I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death. My only Savior 
before the holy judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness. The Lamb who is my righteousness. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our blessed Father, we pray that by the Spirit, that you would continue to work repentance within each and every one of our souls. Quicken us to always call upon your name, knowing that our minds are often distracted, our thoughts vagrant, and our hearts hardened, and our affections cold. Remind us that Christ cannot be the way if we are the end. That he cannot be our redeemer if we are to ourselves our own savior. That there can be no true union with him while our affections are entangled with the snares of this world. But, O oh Lord, help us to simply know and rest in this. That it is he who has been perfectly fitted for us to save us and to reconcile us to our Heavenly Father. We pray this to the glory of God the Father, through the blood of Christ the Son and by the empowering ministry of God the Spirit, three in one, one in three. Amen.